Hello and welcome to the Pink Isle. My name is Henry Kathman, and joining me is the doll scholar who is baller, Emma Corey. Wow, and I've never I've never been described as baller before. That's a new one. I mean, I mean, how are we feeling about that? Should I make that the new tagline? Um, you know, I feel like you could find some more uh, adjectives that rhyme to fit in there. Well, I'll say, uh, you know about Emma. What we call her, she's a baller, doll scholar, who's off the wall, er? Okay, now it's just getting too far. It's going too far. Okay, well, I'll find a middle ground later. So yeah, welcome to part two of Behind the Barbie, where we have been discussing the biography of Ruth Handler, the one of the co-founders of Mattel Industries, and the main person credited with the creation of our beloved Barbie. And I gotta be real with y'all, listener, uh, when I sat down to write this little script about her biography, I was not expecting it to take the turns that it did end up taking. Yeah, and, Henry, uh, Henry, for in doing this research, Henry has been very, very excited about what he's about to share. I am, I am ecstatic to be able to share some of this, and to the point where I hope I'm not psyching myself and Emma up, but I gotta say, the the turns that this biography has taken, uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a ride. But if you're listening to this for the first time, I recommend that you listen to part one of this little mini series where we've gone into the birth and the early life of Ruth Handler and her husband Elliot and some of the other context surrounding the creation of Barbie, um, or don't. I mean, I'm not a cop. D- do what you want. I don't know. I don't know what you want from me, but yeah, we're we're gonna be diving into part two of this. And Emma, like, when last we left off, what's been your initial impression of old uh, Ruth Handler thus far? I think she's just kind of a business lady. Don't really have any strong opinions on her at the moment. I liked yeah. I liked the word you could doodle. I'm glad that I of <laughs> uh, that its existence. Um, y- you know, uh, I'm just I'm just here. Yeah. I, my my ears are open. I'm ready to learn uh, some more Barbie uh, lore, as it were. Uh, and uh, oh yeah. man! All right. Well, you know what? I think there's no. Use beating around the bush. Let's let's just dive right into it. So, by 1955, Ruth and Elliot Handler had managed to grow Mattel industry from this modest plastic manufacturer that was making crappy jewelry and furniture to a rising name within the world of American toys, oftentimes quickly capitalizing on pop cultural trends and industrialization within their production in order to make their products uh, sent to market as fast and as cheap as possible. I mean, case in point, the the could do doodle being based off of like a basically proto meme from a talent show. And I should note, all of this stuff, 
a lot of this is from the biography Barbie and Ruth, uh, the story of the world's most famous doll and the woman who created her by Robin Gerber, which I've, at this point, I come to highly recommend. Uh, and you can find all the other sources and stuff for this in the description. But let me hit you with this quote, Emma. Uh, with our systems, we might as well be turning out real airplanes and missiles, Ruth once remarked in an interview with the New York Times, which was reflective of both Ruth's boisterous personality complimenting her husband's penchant for invention, which many point to as the source of the couple's rising success in meeting America's demand for toys in the post-war baby boom. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about likening the creation of toys to missiles and airplanes. I mean, you know, under capitalism, it's all just the same thing, ain't it? When we go to war, the, the toys become the the missiles, and then once war is over, the missiles become toys. Hmm. Interesting. With all that kind of success, the handlers started embracing a lavish new lifestyle, moving into these expensive homes down in Malibu, taking expensive vacations, like the one that we had mentioned where they went to uh, Europe and met a certain doll. And most notably, uh, this is an interesting fact I learned, uh, indulging Ruth's love of cars... Like many other Americans in the 1950s, the expansion of the country's highway system, the erosion of our public transportation system, and the white flight out of cities into suburbs greatly increased our dependency and demand for cars, all the while auto manufacturers sold them as the symbol of freedom to average Americans. And Ruth particularly enjoyed convertible, and she was most well-known, for this is true, driving around a custom-made pink thunderbird convertible that is amazing is there a picture of it because you gotta think when you think of barbie i feel like the pink convertible is like the quintessential barbie car exactly yeah it's so there aren't any surviving photos that specifically show that off although i should note when we're, we're talking a pink thunderbird it's salmon yeah it's a salmon color <laughs> yeah she loved that car but now that she was reaching all this new success, Ruth was dead set on producing a new kind of toy that was considered previously unthinkable, a doll of a grown-up woman. Now, we've sort of talked about this a little bit in our episode where we discussed Build Lily, which you can listen to, but the story goes, by common knowledge, is that Ruth was dissatisfied with the state of toys for girls, specifically because of her young daughter, Barbara. So, if you were a young girl, you either had to settle for cheap paper dolls or more expensive and durable fashion dolls of the day, which were molded to always appear like large babies, even when girls wanted to dress the dolls like adults. Oh yeah, I mean, it's like the whole premise of that Barbie teaser. It's like, which, you know, was pretty true thing. It was kind of unheard of at the time to have like a doll that's like a lady. You know, more of like a aspirational figure than like a, uh, just a way to pretend to be a mother. Yeah. You know, so. Well, keep that idea of aspiration in mind, because that's going to come up later. 
So, when she initially pitched the idea of an adult doll toy to her husband, Elliot Handler balked at the idea, citing the fact that the same mothers who were fleeing to the suburbs out of the fear of diversity and progress were never going to buy their daughters a doll with breast. I mean, I guess time is a flat circle, you know, because remember, like, when, like, brats kind of came on the scene and, like, there was, like, yeah. kind of a moral panic about them because they're sassy and they dress yeah. in a skimpy fashion or something like that. And I'm pretty sure, like, you know, when Barbie came out, it was pro- there was probably maybe similar concerns in that. Yeah, that is that is an interesting parallel. I'm glad you brought that up. And that was actually going to be a common theme in Ruth's pitch of the Barbie doll, not just to her husband, but to other executives at Mattel. Though, after a fateful trip to Switzerland, the handlers were introduced to the Build Lily doll, a doll that wasn't a facsimile of an infant, but looked elongated and cartoonish, yet dressed in elegant costumes mimicking the latest fashion trends. So, again, you can listen to more about Build Lily in that episode uh, to find out more about that. But the popular of Build Lily amongst the European cities that they traveled to, it was enough motivation for Ruth to convince Mattel's head of research and design, a guy named Jack Ryan, to start manufacturing their own versions of the doll using a Build Lily toy Ruth had brought back from her European trip. The doll would be named Barbie, named after the daughter that Ruth was determined to do anything to make a reality, to the point where some would say she treated the Barbie doll with the same level of affection and attention as the real Barbara. Hmm. I'm wondering, have there ever really been any, like, interviews with Barbara about how she feels about Brand? Is she, like, still alive? Oh, she's given out a couple of interviews over the years, She is somewhat rare to actually give interviews. Like, the most recent interview I could find was one from five years ago that Branded Content Marketing Association, a YouTube channel with, like, 457 subscribers did back in 2017. I believe she is still alive, but by all accounts, she doesn't seem to be that dismayed by the creation of Barbie the doll. Yeah, so it's it's not like a like a Christopher Robin situation, is what I'm wondering. From what I can glean, it doesn't seem that way. Okay. We'll talk a little bit more about Barbara in a bit. But with the recruitment of Jack Ryan, uh, Ryan would set about to manufacture these new dolls using the molds created from the Build Lily doll, uh, with the collaboration of a man named Frank Nakamura, a young product designer from Japan. So... I don't know how much you know about the manufacturing of Japan during this time. This is like 1955 when this Uh, is happening. Pretty much nothing. So at the time, Japan had become an ideal manufacturer for a lot of American products, thanks in part to new policies brought about through the prime minister and exonerated war criminal Nobusuke Kishi who was never charged for his multiple human rights violations during World War II, and 
was exonerated after a group called the American Council for Japan lobbied for the Japanese government to drop all charges, believing that he could take the country into a pro-America direction. Oh, God. Oh, yes. Oh, we're getting there, Emma. Oh. Uh, oh, well, yeah. Well, when you say war crimes, um, what what is Because I, I do know of various war crimes Japan had uh, committed during World War II. Like, what, what, what were the specific ones he was involved with? Well, uh, in terms of some of the different illicit activities, uh, the most notable one was the slavery. Lots of slavery. Like, just a harrowing amount of slavery throughout the Manchuria Industrial Development Company, where a lot of folks... We're not having a good time just being, like, captured by the army and sold into sexual slavery for them. Huh. Like, he was uh, self-described as a playboy of the Eastern world. Oh, sounds like an American ally to me. To me. Yeah, yeah, like, um, I'm not gonna go into too much more detail about Kishi, uh... Just so you know, listener, uh, the podcast Behind the Bastards did a pretty thorough profile of him if you want to hear a little bit more about that. But the most important thing you need to know about Kishi is that uh, Japan was becoming a much more America-centric environment where they adopted their new constitution, they had basically a new American version of a Congress, and it, it was basically like a big old... USA coat of paint just applied to Japan, and oftentimes uh, recruiting the same bureaucrats that were in charge of the Japanese Empire uh, in order to help run the new government, which, uh, hmm, I could see no foreseeable problems in that government structure. Yeah, yeah, you know, a good way to create a, a good new government after old government was, like, evil, you know, just to get the same people again. Yeah, but, 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 to, but it's fine, I they got rid of the... It's fine, they got rid of the Emperor. Okay. Well, rather, they made the Emperor retire, and from my knowledge, I, I think the former Emperor ended up being fine. But yeah. Yeah! <laughs> so, anyway, with Japan's new pro-America environment, uh, the lower labor cost found within the country let Nakamura hire the company called Kokusai Boki, a small distributor and manufacturer who would help to make the new dolls out of the newly discovered but very malleable form of polyvinyl chloride, which is now known as PVC plastic, which would not only produce products that were inexpensive, but they were also easy to mold, fire-resistant, and so durable that it takes more than 450 years for them to biodegrade. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that could only... That's a good thing, right? Right? That's yeah, you got some real durable Barbies there, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm seeing no problems here. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, with this new miracle material, Ruth and her production team eventually settled on the design for the Barbie dolls, and they were able to iterate upon the Build Lily doll molds and create their own version of the dolls. So... Once they actually made the plastic dolls, the next task was to find clothing, because you're going to need to find someone who can help to design the litany of high fashion items that you can dress your doll in. I mean, that's a good portion of the point coming from here. So, this led to uh, Ruth finding a woman named Charlotte Buchenbach Johnson, 
who was a fashion designer who was recently divorced with no children, who was working out in New York and could likewise drop everything and move to Japan to work with suppliers in designing these new clothings. And Johnson, by all accounts, seemed to have a pretty good time acting as Barbie's first fashion designer. But during this process, Johnson and the production staff informed Ruth that the traditional zippers and buttons would be too expensive and detailed to produce at a large enough scale. So this forced manufacturers to have to develop miniature versions of these clothes under the meticulous gaze of Johnson, who believed that adding such detail would help to make the clothing items unique to the doll line, and likewise would make the clothing items much more difficult for bootleggers to copy at the same level of quality. Yeah, like how they copied that mold of the that other doll to make the yeah, doll. Yeah, no irony here. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Well, see, they cop they only copied the plastic mold of the doll. They didn't copy the clothing, from what I could tell. Though it was one thing to design the clothes, it was another thing to actually manufacture them. So to produce the dolls at the level of quality and price that they were looking for, Mattel ended up contracting Japanese laborers who would be paid at a piece rate. Do you know what that means, Emma? No. So if you are paid at a piece rate, that is when someone is being paid a fixed amount for each unit that is produced. So like the equivalent of being, this is not the exact example, like paid a dollar for every shoe you created. Okay. So oftentimes the laborers that were producing the first set of Barbie clothes were often poor workers from the Japanese countryside who were willing to work for low wages in between the harvest times. See, thanks to some of the government regulations brought about by the Kishi administration, uh, it was very, very easy to pay different workers at a low peace rate because, you know, your country just did get bombed to heck, so pe people are going to be taking what they can get. But many of these day laborers would actually manufacture these clothing in their own private homes for long hours and at a low pay, where they would essentially get a large amount of fabric, they would get the design for the doll clothes, they would sew them, some, oftentimes by hand, sometimes with sewing machines, and then put them into a bunch of crates and send it off to the Kokuesai Boeki Distribution Center. Building, yeah. building clothes for ants. Building clothes for ants in your house. And it does kind of, it j just reminds me of, a, have you seen Parasite? The family would make money just, like, folding pizza boxes, basically, in their home. Literally, that was the main point of comparison that I was thinking when I was reading this for the first time, and I don't know what that kind of says that that was where my mind went. But don't worry, they didn't all work at home, because those who weren't able to afford permanent housing at the time would live and eat at company-run dormitories. Oh no. Uh, yeah, no, it was fine. You know, they would just sleep in these barracks with presumably privacy, and they would eat all in the same cafeteria, and then they would work on the factory floor making these clothes. I don't know, this. I just feel like there's never anything good that comes out of those workplaces where they're like, see, we have a cot for you. Now you can stay as long as we need you to. What? I, I, I don't know about you. I see absolutely zero precedent for a company town not turning out good. It, like, you know, it just seems as sweet as a Hershey bar. Oh, no. They're just pulling them up. Man, just 
Pullman. Pullman, Chicago. Anyway, (laughs) despite these poor working conditions, credit to the workers. Like I said, they were mostly working at these low wages during harvest time. So once harvest time did come around, it was actually exceptionally common for basically the entire workforce to quit en masse once ever, whenever August rolled around. But even though most of them would end up leaving each August, the workers, while they were there, were very diligent as they produced a variety of outfits for the many different scenarios that Barbie could find herself in. So, Emma, have you seen any of the early clothing items for Barbie? Uh, the only one I'm really aware of is the that like first Barbie outfit, the swimsuit, but I'm sure there's there were a variety of... Uh... 1950s style clothing that was produced. Indeed there were. So some of the different outfits that they included was a little classy evening dress. Uh, There was a cook's outfit with like an apron and a chef's hat. This peachy fleece clothing item which had like a, a little cute purse and some gloves. There was also this polka dotted apple printed sheath shirt that was like pretty popular. Oh, what else was there? Oh, there was a pair of jeans and a checkered blouse for when you wanted to put Barbie in a picnic. Let's see. Oh, there was the wedding dress. You can't forget the wedding dress. And, uh, oh, yeah, there was a lacy dress called the Plantation Bell. Oh, no. You know, it, it had everything. It had a nice white lacy dress. It had a sun hat. It had gloves. It had some high heels. Oh, the damage uh, Gone with the Wind has done to our society. Indeed it has. Indeed it has. To be fair, it did also uh, pull from a good movie with a doll collection line based off of the movie Roman Holiday, which was like Aubrey Hepburn's like big like It's really cute. Debut. I love the little like long pinstripe jacket. That's really cute. Yeah, no, it's it's a cute outfit. Like there's some nice outfits in here. It's just that one just said a uh, put a bad taste in the mouth, though. I know. Like, that, that, that does remind me of how there's that one, like, Six Flags, I think it's Six Flags in Georgia ride that's called, like, well, now it's called, like, Monster Mansion, but for the longest time it was, like, Monster Plantation, and, uh... Oh, no! And, yeah, they, they oh, ended no. up that eventually. Yep, we've definitely moved on from that. Yep. The ride itself is very terrifying, though, if you ever watch a ride through, it's, uh, spooky vibes. Spooky vibes. For more reasons than one. Oh, yes. As you already had mentioned, Emma, perhaps the most iconic of these items was Barbie's first outfit, a zebra-striped swimsuit that all the first model Barbies were dressed in, which, do you have any guess why they ended up going with that outfit in particular? Maybe for, like, its simplicity, I'm imagining? Part of it was the simplicity that, you know, it was a single piece swimsuit, so it was pretty easy to make compared to some of the more elaborate items, but... Also, Mattel specifically cited that the swimsuit was made to incentivize young girls to buy more outfits so that they could fill out the rest of Barbie's wardrobe. Because, you know, moms were already not going to be super hot on Barbie being kind of sultry, so they were going to want her to cover that up. That is that is kind of brilliant marketing cheese, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I kind of got to hand it to them. That is a way to, like prey upon the prudish conservatism that was running rampant in the 1950s, because on one hand, you had dudes who were still, like, being horny as all ever, but still also trying to, like, present that father's nose best kind of exterior. That's going to become relevant later, for reasons. 
Yep. So despite their production moving at a great pace, a lot of the initial reactions to Barbie were not as glowing as some retellings might lead you to believe. You might have heard, like, plenty of those stories of, like, Ruth wanted to make a doll for her daughter that could be an adult, and it was this brand new design as it, and when it hit the doll stores, it ended up becoming this big, massive success. But in reality, uh, the reactions were way less glowing. So... When Ruth debuted Barbie in the 1955 New York Toy Fair, many attendees were shocked by the apparent sexuality of the doll, particularly the choice of selling her in just a bathing suit. And likewise, a lot of stores actually ended up having difficulty selling their initial inventory of the dolls and would refuse to buy any more of them. And this was a bit of a problem because by that point, the handlers worked off of a model of mass ordering a lot of dolls in anticipation for their release, with a lot of the production from Japan becoming a, like, big portion of their sales strategy. And by 1959, uh, they had over 20,000 dolls ordered from manufacturers in Japan that were on their way to the United States, and they still had all of their inventory. So... This ended up spelling disaster for Mattel, and as you could imagine, also caused a devastated Ruth to cut production by 40%. Well, you know, like anything, it's sometimes sometimes you get a bit of a slow burn before you get the big break, you know? That's true. When reading through uh, the biography of this, uh, there's like these descriptions of handler chain-smoking, like, a bunch of cigarettes in her hotel suite in New York, trying to desperately sell these Barbies as different advertisers were just, like, not buying. Oh, no. It, it was pretty interesting, because Handler, at that point, was decently well-known amongst, like, the toy world. They weren't as big as their contemporaries, like, Kenner uh, toys, but they were still... Mattel was a rising star in the New York and American toy market. So, you know, if this Barbie doll didn't end up becoming a success, that could have caused Mattel to potentially shut down. Despite this massive disappointment, Ruth would not give up on this doll, and she would be dead set to make sure that her Barbie doll was a success. To the point where Barbie became one of the biggest priorities in Ruth's life, as best exemplified by Ruth's relationship with the real Barbara in her life. Oh, no. In the spring of 1959, Barbara Handler announced her plans suddenly to her parents that she was going to leave home and marry a man named Alan M. Siegel as soon as she graduated high school. Siegel was described as a rough, tough, and very macho manned, and Barbara was determined to marry the former naval officer in spite of her parents not approving her getting married at so young. Like, yeah, she's but, only 18 yet at the time. So how old is this, is this dude? I could not find any information. I tried looking up as much information as I could about Alan M. Siegel. I have to imagine the fact that he was in the Navy, and the two had lost touch... I have to imagine, unless he's, like, in the Army Reserves or something like that, like, we're looking at a guy that's, like, 
at least like five, six, maybe up to ten years older than her. Huh. You know, I gotta say, I'm, I'm maybe with, I'm maybe with Ruth on this one, Barbara. I'm uh, yeah, sorry. That, I mean, which it might be a little bit ironic considering like some of the uh, stuff we found about about Ruth's own marriage. Yeah. Yeah, but, but according to two uh, very different things. Yeah, I suppose it is a difference between like marrying your high school sweetheart and marrying this naval officer after being estranged for a couple of years. Uh, the story goes is that uh, Barbara met her future husband when she ran into him at an insurance collection agency that she was working at at the time, which... There are insurance collections agencies hiring high schoolers? Yeah, I, I guess. The 50s were fucking wild. I don't know. Like, they're, bu- like, they're just having, like, 17-year-olds, like, working... I imagine she was, like, a secretary or something along those lines. I can't imagine it being that, like, an intensive thing because she was also still going to high school at this point. But Say, still. If madman has taught me anything, uh, the si- in the 60s, being in the workplace was the most nightmarish place for a woman to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which, I don't know, you think that, like... I imagine, like, Barbara was working mostly to, like, establish her own independence. Like, I can imagine, like, Mattel was, like, again, the handlers were doing pretty fine. She didn't necessarily need to work. So I I wasn't able to get much information about, like, uh, Barbara's own life in terms of that. But it, it is interesting. Though, according to Ruth, quote, he was very romantic looking in a sailor suit, but... She needed him like she needed a hole in his head. Yeah, you know, you know I, 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 I can see that. I, young Barbara seems like a very uh, capable young person, you know, probably. I mean, the fact that, like, the Barbie line is kind of failing at the moment, and now her daughter's, like, looking to marry, it's, it's a little precarious. Though, <laughs> perhaps out of her own experience in marrying Elliot... Ruth didn't put much effort into stopping her daughter from marrying Siegel that August, now that the New York Toy Fair had put the fate of Barbie into question. To hear that this sort of, like, distance being formed between, like, the real Barbie and her mom, Emma, I'm calling it right now, like, reading through this biography, within the next five years, I swear, we are going to get a Ruth Handler biopic. Especially if this Margot Robbie Barbie movie ends up popping off like it is. Which leaves the question as who they would cast as Miss Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Absolutely no doubt. Instead of uh, it being the Iron Lady, it would be the Plastic Lady. Oh my god. Oh my god. I feel like I could definitely see them going with that title. Although I feel like the Dollmaker. If I know my Oscar Beatty titles, I feel like they would go with the Dollmaker. Again, Mattel, I will write the shit out of a Ruth Handler biopic. I'll even gloss over the Japanese labor violations. Like, yeah, like, hit me up. I I probably wouldn't, actually. I don't know. I probably would get in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. So this is the situation that Ruth is in. Her daughter's married. Future of Barbie is in question. So she's got to make a couple of moves in order to get that success. Though, in order 
to help Barbie reach this level of success that Ruth wanted, she would, interestingly enough, return to her love for her pink Thunderbird and the man who helped introduce Ruth and a lot of Americans to the love of cars. Okay. One of the men who was responsible for cultivating America's continued obsession with cars was a psychologist and corporate consultant by the name of Ernest Dichter. Wait, Uh, Ernest Dichter? Yes. But I'm just saying Ernest Dichter, it sounds like like a character from a comic book, you know? Yeah, no, he does. I mean, if you look at this photo, he, he does get like comic book mad scientist vibes just off of this picture of him in the biopic he would be played by danny devito oh my god oh my god emma emma oh my god i'm pulling out the rest of this cast on my mind okay i got focus anyway um i mentioned he's a psychologist you want to take any guesses at what his specialty in psychology was I don't know, maybe he was really into Freud. Oh yeah, he was into Freud, Emma, and it is going to get... You see, the girls love the Barbie dolls because they remind them of Mother. Uh, Oh, oh, we'll get to that. Yeah, so uh, Ernest Dichter, man, his Freudian ass believed that one of the easiest ways to convince Americans to buy a product was to give it an air of sexuality. Like, he was just all for making people horny for all those products, which even to this day, there there was literally a piece published in Business Insider last April, like last year, talking about how Ernest Dichter's brought psychology to business. And he's known for being the, like, forefather of research marketing and motivational research in order to like use Freudian psychoanalytics in order to try and develop uh stuff that could appeal to different consumer behaviors I mean you know you if you make people a little bit horny they might be more interested in your product you know I, I could have yeah. figured that out I didn't need a psychology degree yeah, yeah anytime you see a commercial like if I mean, they, does Hardy's even do those, like, swimsuit girl commercials anymore? I assume probably in the in the new age, they probably would know they would get lambasted for doing those kinds of ads anymore. Yeah, oh. I, but, like, when you think about any of those other, like, vaguely horny ads, which basically try to coerce you into having sex with whatever the product is, you could thank Ernest Dichter for that. So yeah, you know, nothing nothing makes you horny more than like a greasy, disgusting fast food burger can, you know? Yeah, yeah. I just want to hone in on this a little bit more. Uh, so according to a write-up in Cabinet Magazine titled The Hidden Persuader by Christopher Turner, quote, As America entered the 1950s, the decade of heightened commodity fetishism, Dichter offered consumers moral permission to embrace sex and consumption and forged a philosophy of corporate hedonism, which he thought would make people immune to dangerous totalitarian ideas. Okay. (laughs) Yep, and... I should note the specific totalitarian ideas he's talking about. Yes, he is talking about fascism. He is also talking about communism. Yep. 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 1950s, baby. It was that time, wasn't it? Hedonism, Dichter argued, 
as defended by the old Greeks, has been brought to the surface again. We have to learn to forget the guilt of original sin. Okay. All right. All right. Yep, yep. La Defender of the old Greek hedonism. But Dichter maintained that Americas had to shed their outmoded concepts of morality if they were to discover their freedom in commodity culture without the destructive guilt that might lead them to fascism or communism. We are fighting a sham battle with rockets and hydrogen bombs, while underneath the real struggle, the silent war, is for the position of men's minds. I gotta say, your uh, your German accent became a bit Scottish there. It, yeah, it's it's a bad accent, but still, nothing nefarious there. Just yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, good vibes all around. Look, I'm usually of the general mindset that it's like, you know what? Let people be horny. We need to destigmatize the concept of horniness, you know, yeah. like, especially nowadays when like media is very, very like sexless. Yeah. In a way that you can almost say it was somewhat of a reaction to like the, the high uh, horniness of decades past, which, yeah. you know, on one hand it's like, yeah, yeah. A lot of like sexy stuff and movies and TV is very exploitative, uh -huh. but but there's a there's a line to get where now you'll get like ev feels like every other week on Twitter discourse they'll be like we should not have sex scenes in movies they're always yeah. bad and it's like I don't know I don't know yeah, what movies I'm you're watching because like you don't you don't really see sex in movies no anyway. yeah I mean I'm I'm, I'm of a like similar mind stuff, you know yeah I'm of a similar mind as long as you are putting like adequate adequate content warnings and like all the parties involved are like consenting to it it's like yeah suck a dick i don't know life is short mm -hmm. but like i find it interesting that dictor specifically mentions hedonism as a driving philosophy of his marketing considering that most consumers in america at the time had rejected barbie for her perceived promiscuity and the pleasure that could have been derived from such behavior. You know, that hedonistic behavior, you know, made visual... I don't know. I think it, that kind of says something about how, like, like, people might have those kind of underlining desires for, like, certain types of things, but, like, as soon as it's made, like, physical or visual, like, there's that element of shame. Yeah. I don't know. It is interesting. So, because Dichter had had a lot of success advertising, like, everything from cars to soap to lipstick using just the horniest kind of justifications, uh, the handlers decided to bring him on. Actually, hang on. Before I talk about, like, what Dichter did, I do need to note, Dichter, no joke, uh was partially responsible for some of the changes to lipstick shape because he thought, oh, we need to make these lipstick containers more phallic in order to facilitate the feminine pleasure. He suddenly became French all of a sudden. My accents are all over the place. I know, and he should be Danny DeVito. God, yeah, no, I'm just picturing horny Danny DeVito just being like, yeah, you gotta make the doll as sexy as possible. You gotta make make the the lipstick remind them of a penis. 
Girls like it when lipstick reminds them of penises. God. <laughs> yeah, so the handlers ended up hiring Dictor, and uh, Dictor ended up using his background as a psychological researcher in order to interview 191 young girls between the ages of 5 and 13, as well as 45 mothers. So, according to Dictor's wife, it turns out that what they want was someone sexy looking. Someone that they wanted to grow up to be like. Long legs, big breast, glamorous. Amazing. Your quote wasn't too far off, Emma. <laughs> yeah. He's interviewing like nearly 200 girls. Some of them like five years old. I just have to wonder what kind of interview like I... To be a fly on the wall on that kind of interview process with that, it's it's very interesting. According to a lot of these interview testimonies, most of the moms were pretty not on board with Barbie, uh, specifically citing the breasts being so prominent and her being so overtly sexual. The interviews done with the young prepubescent girls make Dieter's major suggestions just all the more puzzling. Any guesses what uh, Dichter suggested they do? I don't know, so tell me. It might not surprise you to learn that one of Dichter's first major suggestions was to enlarge Barbie's breast. Yeah, you know, you know. Yeah, Just yeah, absolutely incredible. <laughs> Again, to be a fly on the wall for those interviews, like... I just need to know, like, what in the ever-loving hell is going through his head during these interviews to make him think, yes, after talking with these young girls, bigger boobs is the answer. You know what? It's it's what, what every young girl dreams of. You uh, know? Just having a big old wreck. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, then you could be me and have it become a reality. And now your back hurts all the time. Tis the price for girl boss and too close it's, to the It's sun. the price you have to pay. <laughs> so yeah. sad. Yeah. That was one of Dictor's major suggestions. But additionally, the second major suggestion is even prescient to even modern Barbie, where Dictor encouraged the handlers to market Barbie uh, not as an idle fashion doll, but as an educational tool for mothers, where the sexual elements were downplayed in order to help emphasize the idea of teaching young girls how to properly accessorize as an adult woman. You mentioned earlier, Emma, that idea of Barbie being this aspirational figure. I do think it's kind of interesting when you think about how a lot of kind of like toys for boys kind of back in the day we're almost a bit more kind of focused on like escapism and fantasy, you know, mm -hmm. like here's a superhero, here's a dinosaur, you know, when a lot of girls toys, it's kind of like, here's how to take care of a baby. Here's how to take care of a pet. Here's how to dress fashionably, you know, and yeah. it just, you can say it kind of like sort of showcases, you know, what Elisa's time was the general kind of like social expectations between yeah. boys and girls. I think what I find especially interesting about that is that this idea of Barbie being aspirational and, like, a person that you would want to grow up to be, like, that's 
a kind of characterization that is still kind of applicable to Barbie today. I mean, we need to not look further than, like, her movies to kind of see that being, like, a pretty pervasive part of her characterization. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what Barbie was always about. It was kind of like, they were vessels as to which, like, you could kind of, like, use your imagination to imagine, like, scenarios that adults would be going through, you know? Yeah. I will say, one thing I could level at, like, the Barbie movies is that they did help to bring Barbie into that realm of escapism. I think that is, like, probably one of the bigger positives that could that has been brought to Barbie as a character now that, like... Because I feel like before, like, Barbie and the Nutcracker... Like, even with those Barbie 80s movies, they were still so grounded in reality that... You you like, say grounded in reality. Barbie goes to space. Okay, yeah. And, fair, and fair. And, like, causes world... Creates world peace yeah, by, that's, by that's being fair. Barbie and telling all the countries that they should get along. Fair, fair. But you know what I mean? Like, even those movies, like, they were meant to be set in like a facsimile of the real world rather than like a fairy tale kingdom although i i'm sure that there probably were kind of like fantasy barbies that were produced before those movies yeah that's true that's true i don't know i do find that interesting that that is an element that is now a lot more prominent within barbie as a character yeah so when it comes to, like, these suggestions, I was not able to find out if Ruth ended up following that first suggestions about making the boobs bigger, but I do know that they did decide to put the focus on Barbie as an educational tool, and they would take that to heart even to this day to a degree. So, eventually, they, uh, Ruth would set to work for debuting Barbie on the Mickey Mouse Club, which... Mattel was still an exclusive sponsor for, even by March 1959. And they designed the commercial as if Barbie wasn't a doll, but a teenage fashion idol. So, I want to just end things off showing off the first Barbie commercial, Emma. Alright, hopefully I'm very excited. I don't know if I've seen this or not, probably not all the way through. Yeah, it was a pretty simple one. Barbie, you're you make me feel my Barbie doll is really real. Barbie's small and so petite, her clothes and figure look so neat. Her dancing outfit rings the bell, at parties she will cast a spell. Purses, hats, and gloves galore, and all the gadgets gals adore. Barbie dressed for swim and fun is only $3. Her lovely fashions range from $1 to $5. Look for Barbie wherever dolls are sold. Someday I'm gonna be exactly like you. Till then I know just what I'll do. Barbie, beautiful Barbie. I'll make believe that I am you. You can tell it's Mattel. It's swell. You can tell it's Mattel. It's swell. Indeed. You know, uh... So, some fun stuff was learned. I liked uh, meeting the Danny DeVito sex psychologist <laughs> who was involved. That was fun. Uh, yeah, not yeah. too not too keen about the the, the labor exploitation in foreign countries. So, you know, I mean, I guess that's kind of that's kind of part for the course for how a manufacturing process operates in the world. Yeah, you could tell it's Mattel. It's swell. 
Yeah. Yeah. My goal was to, like, just make this thing just a two-parter. I figured, okay, I'll talk about Ruth Handler's early life. I'll talk about the launch of Barbie. And then we'll talk about a little bit about some of the posting. But this, this five-year period of 1959 to 1960 of the process of launching the Barbie doll just... So freaking buck wild. I teased the embezzlement charges in part one. And we're not even close to that yet. So this is a slow burn. Very excited to show you more of this. But that is going to be about where we end things off. And you can see, Emma, how like this, this does give the vibes of like a one of those biopics like I am oh, no. kind, of, kind of imagining this trailer where, like, there's, like, a cut to Danny DeVito being, like, the breast should be bigger. And then there's, like, <laughs> a like a music sting and, like, a reaction oh, shot. And then it's, it, it transitions to the next scene, and that's part of the trailer. Hollywood will make a biopic out of anyone today. Like, we can... <laughs> who I who can would play, uh, play Elliot? If he was still alive, I was going to say, like, Bob Hoskins. He's got Bob Hoskins vibes, but... You got to send pick. Oh, God, yeah, he does look a lot like Bob Hoskins. He does look so much like Bob Hoskins. Who plays Tony Soprano? I can picture him doing that. Well, he's dead, so... Oh, shit. Oh, no. I mean, hell, let's just put Tom Hanks in a bunch of prosthetic makeup. I mean, it hasn't stopped him so far. If he can do it for whale. Uh, sorry, no, that not whale Elvis. He can do Elvis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different movies. Man, man, it was kind of kind of weird in Hollywood how like fat suits that uh, kind of had a big comeback this year. Yeah, I mm. don't. Not a fan. Mm. Tbh, like God. Yeah. Remember when when Gary Oldman got an Oscar for being uh, Winston Churchill? Yep, we sure let that happen. Yep. Hang on, side note, I do have one other little thing. I literally just stumbled upon a picture of uh, the handlers with a very interesting individual, so I, I know the new role that Tom Hanks could play. Oh, there's them with Disney. Yep, mi- them with Mr. Walt Disney. You Man. know what, seeing a young picture of, of her husband, of Elliot, you know who could who this could be? Jason uh, Alexander. Yeah. Oh my god. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Get Jason that Oscar. He's put in the time. He deserves it. I know. Like, I can't I can't think of the last time he's, like, been in a movie, though. Well, he was also in Young Sheldon as a guy named Gene Lundy. So he's got that Young Sheldon money. Yeah, he's got that Young Sheldon money. He was, like, I guess Sheldon's, like, history teacher or something like that, so, like... I wonder, like how, I wonder how many seasons they'll be able to squeeze out of that premise, because, like, you know, that young Sheldon, he ain't getting any younger. He ain't getting any younger. That's the dilemma gonna of be, making a young Sheldon. Adult Sheldon, eventually. Yeah. At that point, they just they just make Sheldon. Oh, God. Yeah. College-age Sheldon. Yeah, Chuck Lorre is never going to let the Big Bang Theory die. All right, so... I think that's going to be about where we end things off. So uh, thank you all once again for joining us in this little uh, escapade into the life and times of Ruth Handler and the creation of Barbie. Next time, we'll be going into the actual aftermath of Barbie's success. Uh, This last section is going to be a little bit 
I'm not going to go into as much detail about every single thing that happened because I feel like we can make a good couple of episodes about some of the uh, historical escapades with Barbie. Emma, you remember Oreo Barbie? Oh, I remember. Or the uh, special uh, talking Barbie that they based the Malibu Stacy's Simpsons episode over? Yep, yep. Yep, it's uh... That'll be an interesting time. I don't know. If you have a suggestion for, like, any sort of particular eras of Barbie history that you might want us to cover in the Pink Isle, let us know, because... See, that might be a a fun episode to do on its own, though, like the controversies of Barbie going on, like, various, like, specific toys that, like, people tend to talk about. So I know the, the, the pregnant Midge one is also one that people... Oh my god, that's right. Oh, oh. Debatable about, you know? Anyhow. But uh, does that got, get me thinking, you know, like, when you think about, like, marketing for children's toys, as much as, like, a lot of, like, boys' toys, it's like, oh, so gross, so outrageous. But, like, there are so many, like, girl-focused toys that have, like, a focus on, like, pissing and shitting, you know? Yep. Oh, I like, remember baby the baby lives. And shits, or having, like, a dog. That yep. shit's because that was like one of because you know I had Barbie's kid and one of my favorite ones I had it was like a a dog and like you would feed it these pellets and then you would push down on its tail and it's uh, a yep poop would come out yep yep I remember that oh man I remember that it's it is very it interesting was, it was a fun time yeah I oh man oh man my favorite thing was the. Uh, wasn't there a baby alive that, like, threw up? Yeah, well, Hang there on. was that one that would, like, spit, you know? Like, spit would gather. You'd put water in it, and then, yeah. Oh, uh, baby alive burpsy up with color change doll. Oh, oh my god. They actually made a, a baby alive that throws it up. Why? Well, you know, that's it's what babies do. It, it is. I... All right, yeah, that's going to about do it for us. So, uh, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening to The Pink Owl. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you've enjoyed it, you can hit us up in a couple of different ways. Uh, You could follow us at the Cursed Bird app at Pink Owl Pod. Maybe shoot us an email at pinkowlpod at gmail.com. If you have any sort of comments, suggestions, thoughts, feel free to share a little rating on iTunes or uh, Google Play or Spotify doesn't have podcast ratings, but wherever you get your podcast, we appreciate the feedback. And additionally, um, I don't know, just vibing with us, you know, we always just appreciate the listens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Emma, you also have a Twitter, and... Unfortunately. Yeah, and if people wanted to tweet you suggestions for the Barbie biopic of Ruth Handler, uh, and Yeah, yeah give the... me your fan cast. I, I, I would appreciate yeah. it. How, where could they find you to hear those sweet fan cast? <laughs> uh, it's at Emma Corey 9 I don't really, there... uh... 
that's my public Twitter that I don't really use that much. But if you want to follow it, you can. Yeah. Tweet it. Tweet your Barbie fan cast and the lines you would have horny Danny DeVito read as uh, Ernest Dichter. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what you would like, Emma. Yep. Uh, but as for me, uh, you could also follow my stuff at uh, Catherine Henry at Twitter at the Cursed Bird app. Feel free to also send me that horny Danny DeVito posting, you know, within reason. I'm not looking to see any Danny hole or whatnot. Uh, but, yeah, uh, and you can also follow any of this other stuff at, uh, henrycathman.tumblr.com, which has all my videos and stuff, uh, youtube.com slash henrycathman, which has all my video essays and whatnot, and then, uh, everything that I do is supported on Patreon, patreon.com slash henrycathman, and, uh, yeah, I just appreciate all of y'all for, uh, enjoying this with yeah as we get into part three where i i talk about some of the things that ruth handler got up to after the success of barbie yeah yep so until then emma you have any final parting words of wisdom to dispense to our lovely listeners um, when the opportunity arrives for you to do slavery, uh, don't. You know what? That is a piece of advice that I could get on board with. You heard it here first. Searing hot takes from, uh, the pink aisle. Slavery. It's bad. On the other hand, Jason Alexander needs to make a comeback. Okay, I got very nervous when you said, on the other hand, in response to slavery being bad. I was like, I got, especially when you, the words, on the other hand, Jason Alexander, I'm like, um, um, I don't, alrighty, I think uh, that's gonna be it for us. We'll see you next time. Bye.